This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This is the besotted Pride of West London podcast. And it's been a double game week, and the bees here are smiling. The bees fans sitting around the table with me are smiling absolutely because we got four points this week. We won last night against Cardiff 2 1. Absolutely marvellous under the floodlights. And on Saturday, we scored a last minute goal which made it feel like a winner. So this has been an absolute winning week for the bees. So we thought, what's best to do? But on a Wednesday night, come out because now that the, the sun's out you know, in the evening the clocks have gone back the sun's out and it's changed and it's almost cricket season so I know there's a lot of cricket fans out there we've got a few cricket fans here I know the the, the, the Allard you know the Liberal Nick you like a bit of cricket you know the old oh, what's it back thing going on <laughs> so, <laughs> Willow 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 that's right it's all, it's all trees to me anyway but anyway so we thought we'd come down to Richmond Green and we're looking out on the green here absolutely beautiful no cricket going on here at the moment now, but we're in a fantastic pub, lovely, homely little place. It's the Princess Head. The Princess Head. The Princess Head on uh, on the green, on Richmond. And I heard that you used to uh, come here back in the day as well, Liberal. I did indeed, when I was a young man. I, um, you know, my, my, a long time ago? My, it was. My drinking career started in the Princess Head, and it's been downhill from then on. I feel a bit out of it because normally every pub that I go to is I've been sort of drinking there from the age of 13 and 14 but you've actually taken over from me today I swear it does seem that the besotted crews started drinking like a little bit earlier than 18 it, it would seem I think a lot earlier than 18 yeah well personally I, I know I, I, I'm guilty of that the Allard oh yeah yeah definitely definitely very guilty of that and um, and always one of the one of the tallest in the group so always sent to the bar <laughs> before the days when drinking responsibly was um, the, the, the fashion Indeed, indeed. So listen, Princess Ed in Richmond actually taking care of us. Very nice, wide, good range of beers, ales, all sorts of stuff. Uh, liquors behind the bar. There's people being very sensible and posh and families and all sorts of stuff. And but you know, so good drinking place. But look, we've got to crack on today because we've got loads to talk about. Listen, I'm going to introduce you to the gang. Then I'm going to give you a little word about what we're talking about today. I'm Billy Grant here. Um, 
looking at the cricket over on the fields there, and I've got Mr. Dave Lane. How you doing, mate? I'm all right, mate. Yeah, you're all good. Yeah, I'm good. Um, I'm I can't talk to you anymore because we have to move on. Because we, we're, oh yeah, yeah no, we're, I know, we're up against time. Yes. Up against time. I'm very well, Billy. Thank you. I'm Liberal Nick. Good well evening and goodbye. Thank <laughs> you, Liberal Nick. But the LR, the LR, how you doing, mate? You know, you were very happy after last time, weren't you? Yeah, I'm very happy. I'm in the box seat here tonight because I'm actually looking straight out over the green. And um, I can just see the, the wicket. Right, that's enough. Almost, oh, no interest, no interest. <laughs> Sammy B, good to have you back, Sam. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm very relaxed after our uh, our safety run. Yeah, very happy. Indeed, indeed. And the Dutchman, I know you were out with me very late last night, um, drinking in the old Griffin until um, gone past midnight. Uh, everyone's very happy in there. Is that right? Excellent. Good night out. I feel like we're just carrying on from last night, so bring it on. Bring it on. Listen, we're going to talk about that game last night, Bristol City. We're going to talk about the well, Cardiff last night. Bristol City was on Saturday, and the fans were going to talk about, oh, jeez, I've got some lights in my face. <laughs> apparently, we've got more lights than you, apparently. Listen, we're going to talk about those two games, go back to the pub, listen to what the fans had to say about those games. Today there, there was like the, 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 um, the sort of urgency was back a bit. The uh, the intensity was there, particularly at the beginning of the game. They they started really well, lost it a little bit, and then the goal happened. Um, second half they 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 hammered them again, and eventually got our rewards. I thought it was a, a reasonable performance. Uh, you know, quite a good attacking performance. And as you say, there's arguments we could have had. Um, you know three or four goals um, their keeper made three good saves for, for my commitment including the penalty um, but I, I did also feel that you know you could make an argument that Bristol probably could have scored you know a couple more I thought we were a bit shaky at the back at times um, but you know overall you know what actually I was thinking about it I think it's one of those games that um, if it had mattered and if it had been a six pointer um, I think it would have been a really frustrating game I think we, we got the luxury of being able able to watch it and um, relative relaxed and it didn't feel as probably as frustrating as it could have so you know but but yeah not a bad performance in terms of if I quickly cover the players that started today I think Barbe I, I, I'm, I'm still trying to work out whether he times his t- challenges exquisitely or whether he's getting away with murder at the moment um, because there, you know he, t- he, he does like a tackle from behind he didn't get away with that at Sheffield Wednesday um, whether he got away with it today you know I'm in New Road and I'm down the other end and people told me that some of his challenges today were absolutely perfectly timed whereas I thought they were a little bit late and um, I just think we're looking stronger as a team and the midfield definitely to me looks stronger now I think it's brilliant to have McCormack back playing regular Yanoris played really well Um, and I was saying I think Barbe is definitely getting used to championship football and starting to look a real good centre-half. How, how we tread water until judges fit is going to be an interesting period for us. So, um, you know, are, are some of the players that we've got available fit, fit to Lacey's boots? We'll, we'll find out. And I, I think as well, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting few weeks for Brentford because obviously there's, there's not a lot of play for apart from pride. And that's not to say there's nothing to play for. Or clearly there is, you know, we want them to go out and win every week but you know it, what we need to do in the next next few weeks is to just suss players out see if they are are of any use to us you know Kurz Baumer is it is, you know he's you know we, we've said it a lot he's got a lot of grief is, is, is he is he is he fit is he fit to wear the shirt um Gogia, we'll, we'll find out a lot about some of these French players in the next couple of weeks and you know that's that's what we got to do really is just kind of 
use this time um, to just, just just find out about next season. Next season starts now. We played Cardiff today. They are pushing for a playoff place. Yeah, he's good. You know, you can see what we've missed. You know, some of us earlier, have we had him last year with Gray up front? What a combination they would be. There's a guy who's just clearly an actual forward. He's not someone playing a false nine or, you know, behind the He's just a centre forward, strong, fast, great finish for the second goal, great positioning for the first goal, you know, picking up the the scraps, as we say, to, to get that goal and clearly adds a new dimension to the game. Great, great evening, very enjoyable. Uh, well, I thought Brentford were actually um, rather weak. However, had, had um, Russell Slade, who's obviously one of your favourite managers of all time, yeah, had he brought on Kenneth Zahar a lot earlier in the game, because our, your two, your two centre-backs were totally muscling out our, uh, our centre-forwards, who's not really a centre-forward, if he brought Zahor on, he's what did the damage to you in the last 10, 15 minutes. I think it would have been a different result. I think the last couple of games that I've seen, we look way back on form. We seem to be a lot more organised. I like seeing Mac back in the team, Sam Saunders. And at last, it looks like we've got a tasty forward again. A few more additions to this squad, and I think we could do very well. Um, I'm just happy to stay in the championship, to be honest. It's been a tough old season, but at least it's ending on a high. Well, I, I was very impressed tonight, actually. You know, I think um, certainly after we got rid of all our... Uh, most of our team a couple of months ago, and then uh, we lost all our games. And now uh, things seem to have changed around. We scored nine goals in four games, and now we've got Hogan back, and Hogan's uh, scored three goals in two games. And I think uh, it's great to have him back because he knows where the back of the goal is. And I think it certainly seems that you know he's repaying the faith that Brentford have had in him in his long injury period and he, he's a man that we need and he knows where the goal is. The thoughts of the fans in the pubs. It's amazing how jolly everyone is when you feel like you've had a win, which we did on Bristol City, and we've got a win yesterday against Cardiff. But listen, I'm going to go quickly go around the table to get a vibe from you guys. Lady. Um the lights, the flashlights against uh, Cardiff City seem to have been absolutely caned. But um, what are the flashlights? Please well, explain. Apparently, you know, in the second half, uh, the Ealing Road got their got their, 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 kept their phone lights out and they were, they were flashing them around like they just didn't care. Um, but I just thought, you know, it's a, there's cool lights and there's like nerdy lights. So the phone the phone lights are nerdy lights. But if you've got a flare, you've got pyrotechnics. Apparently, that's quite cool. So um, I just and think it, at the moment. Well, I just think there's hypocrisy. There's light hypocrisy. And it's true, it's right. And it's interesting because that was actually stolen from, not stolen, but Wolverhampton Wanderers did that a couple of seasons ago when the whole South Bank actually lit up their way in and we absolutely hammered them for it. Nick? I know South Wales is going through some tough times at the moment and one has to feel for the steel workers in Port Talbot. But by God, they're a load of whingers, aren't they? And moaners. The Cardiff City players last night, every single decision, every little push that they had, they went running to the referee complaining that they weren't receiving their due justice. No, they weren't being given any subsidies. I have never seen a more whinging team than Cardiff City. And I blame Russell Slade. I blame him too. 
Liberal Nick's got Epi. The Elod. Um, I, uh, turning point last night for me was the, the game for the first half and, and part of the second half. It was it felt like a real end of season game and it wasn't wasn't completely competitive. Then it was some sort of coming together between the teams in the middle of the pitch and a few sort of slaps and whatnot. You know, Alan, Mc- oh, Alan McCormack. Well, I was going to say Alan McCormack sort of gave this look and he and he actually reminded me of um, you know Don Logan in Sexy Beast. I suddenly thought I suddenly saw that in him. And, um, and and that was the change. That for me was a turning point in the match. From that moment on, the tackles were sliding in, and it was end to end. Savvy B. Yeah, I just want to big up. Uh, I mean, it's, I know it's a bit obvious, but I want to big up uh, Scott Hogan, who one penalty miss away from having four goals in two late appearances. Um, one, you know, nearly nearly scored two goals on Saturday. Scored two last night. Just came off the last what ten minutes of each game. It's just incredible, incredible. Uh, re- re- really, really top player. Uh, but please listen out for his post-match um, interview after the game on Saturday. Just, just, just listen to it. It's fantastic. He is so competitive, and he really wants a V-base place. He's, I mean, I really like, love that in a player. He just really wants it. He's a proper, proper footballer. Um, the Dutchman. Um, Josh Clark. Good to see Josh Clark and the youngster coming through and having a, a decent game. I thought. Um, congrats, yeah, congrats to Reese Cole for being on the bench, uh, making his and well done to Maxine Collin for beating a burger in the Globe at quarter past seven before kickoff for a game. Quite pleased to see that he wasn't starting, um, <laughs> but good to see him mixing with the fans. And for me, last minute winners. We haven't had them for a while, and the fact we actually got a last minute winner against Bristol City or last minute draw, it felt like a winner, is all good old Brentford. So lots to discuss on this week's podcast, and we're going to go and discuss a couple of things which actually we spoke about last week. So don't get confused if we actually mention the Pilot Pub in Chiswick. That's where we were. We've brought those things forward to this week where we discuss things which sound like they're not that interesting, which are accounts and the CPO, but are absolutely fascinating because it actually shows us where the club is lying at the moment, how much trouble we may or may not be in, what exactly we need to do. So we're going to be talking about things like the finances, looking to the Brentford accounts. We're going to be talking about the compulsory purchase order and Lionel Road and where that's leading us to. We're also going to be discussing in depth after that the Brentford scouting system and the recruitment process. And we've also got a very, very interesting interview with Ted Knutson. You may or may not know who he is. Ted Knutson from Statsbomb, but also he uh, he worked for Brentford for a year in an analytics department and he spoke to the Arsenal podcast Ask Blog. Thank you very much for us using this interview. Very, very interesting about certain things. We've done a load of research on other clubs and how they fare in the scouting and recruitment field and how it's similar or not similar to us. Good feedback on these. And also, we're going to have to look forward to the MK Dons game this weekend. So listen, let's crack on because we've got lots to talk about. Deep inhalation of breath because we know that we are in the championship for a third season, which is an absolutely fantastic feat. Whatever anyone may say about the season that we've had, we haven't had the best season. There's been a lot of mistakes, been a lot of foolishness that's gone down. But hey, you know, we're still well in the game and we may even be a top 10 team after all the balls up that we've had this season. So we thought it may be time for us to have a little analysis, a little breakdown, a little look, so people know what's going on in all sorts of different areas. we got the Dutchman here. He's an absolute expert in the figures, the facts and the figures. So we thought, listen, Dutchman, we handed him a load of documents. We had no idea what was going on. The annual accounts from Brentford FC. And he said, let me have a look and let me tell you what is going down with Brentford and their numbers. And are we in a good shape at the moment? What I really said was, I'm in Tenerife for a week, Billy. Please don't give me all that stuff to read. <laughs> um, yeah, despite all, um, all Billy's views, I'm not actually a, a financial accountant, but looking at the accounts, I think 
what was interesting was just to pick out the highlights. There's actually a lot of stuff in there, the non-financial stuff and just background stuff that sometimes people say isn't being published or isn't in the public domain, and, it, and it's there. Um, what's interesting is that the accounts are for the year up to 30 for June 2015, which had to be filed within nine months. So they, they're filed you know, a day before they're due. So they came out at the end of March, even though they were signed off at the end of December. Um, and all the commentary and the, the, the intro blurb, which is worth the read, is all written sort of December, where you know, the situation was, was very different from what it was now. I think at the time, cars is still in power. You know, and, and, and things, were, things are very different now. But yeah, the numbers there, to interpret the accounts, what, what's clear and what I'm sure nobody doubts, and if they do, then, you know, God help them, is that really the club is completely reliant on Matthew Benham. And if anyone doubts that, just go and check the numbers for yourself. So just to throw some stats at you, you know, the, the, the loss for last year, £16.7 million. Pounds. That's a 91% increase in a loss from the previous year. Even though our turnover from the year was up by 124% to £9.9 million. So despite a, you know, a massive increase in turnover, the, the losses are bigger than ever. Most of the loss, according to the accounts, is actually due to the bonuses they had to pay for the team for finishing fifth. So you, know, you could argue there's some sound business sense behind that in terms of incentivisation, although ultimately... You know, we didn't get to where we wanted to get to, but yeah, that, that's the sort of scale that we're playing at the moment. Of our £9.9 million turnover, if I've read this correctly, you know, £4.1 million of that comes from Football League money now. And the, and the FA. And the FA, you know, that's, that's money from outside the club. That's Basically yeah. drip-down money. This is money that comes down from the big money, from the TV money, from the Premier League and stuff like that, and they, they drip it down to the Championship, to the clubs there, to, to in effect, to appease them because the money is there. So, in effect, that, that's the handout. So... I would knock that 4.5 million off, and that's the money that we actually make ourselves, which is... Well, take off that 4.1, our ticket sales, revenue, etc., is 3.1, you know, 3.1 million pounds, just to put that into perspective, and then you get a couple of million on other stuff, retail, commercial, the odd TV game, etc. So, you know, you can see from there where the money comes from. The TV revenue, though, is actually... I, I looked at that, and it was actually relatively small, isn't it? A couple hundred thousand pounds, so it's... You know, it's, it, they, don't, they don't budget for it because they don't expect it, but it's, it's... You know, you can see there where the money, where the money comes from. Wages out of that cost, yeah. Our wages went up from just under 10 million to 17.7 million pound for the financial year. And just just carry out the financial year is different from the the football season, so there are some slight differences in the stats that you read. But that 17.7 million pounds covers 32 admin staff and 133 players and player connected staff, which I assume means coaching, etc., etc., agents. But you know, there's, there's some numbers in there. I reckon from reading it, Matthew Better must be in for about £75 million currently. So when you're in, what do you mean by he's in for? That, that's what he's exposed to at the moment. Exposed that, to, does it mean that, that's how much he's spent or how much he's lost? Uh, no, that's, that, that's his investment in the club. A combination, I guess, of money that's gone and money that's in there. Just quickly as well, but that doesn't include the stadium because this is, that's a separate company, isn't it? No, there's, there's investment there towards the stadium, I think. There's about £20 million plus in there towards stadium loans. I'm not, yeah, as I say... The, you need better experts than me on that. But there is some stadium-connected stuff in there. Yeah, just in the crowds, we know there's already 10,700 is the crowd quoted, the average crowd for the year. You know, just about, That was 7-7 seven, seven the previous year, and I think that's financial year rather than season ticket year. And season tickets, 5,600 compared with 3,100 for the previous year. So you can see the growth, the growth pattern that we're on. But all that is underpinned by Matthew's money. You know, whatever people think, that, that's where we're at at the moment. Um, is he a multi-millionaire? Let's, let's hope so, eh? 
Okay, I mean, that's interesting there as well. So basically, 75 million in. We lost again. How much last year? We lost 15, uh, 15, 15 million. We lost 17 million last year, and our turnover was nine. Million. 9.9. 9.9 million. So basically, every year we're losing money head on head, despite the money that's coming in. So, um, so in effect, I'm just trying to work out as well. How much does Matthew have to put in his pocket each year, roughly, to just to get us going? Well, I haven't really worked on that yet, but we'll, we'll touch on the CPO later. But certainly, one of the items I had today was reading the CPO documentation at, at some real length and realising that even once you move you know, to, to Lionel Road, as things currently stand, and there's, there's plenty of figures throughout those documents where people have different points of view, but even after we go to Lionel Road, even though our revenue goes up, even though the crowds go up, you know, we're still going to be looking at probably losing, depending on whose point of view, between six and eight million pounds a year that would probably have to be funded by transfers and the progression of... You know, players. Serious, serious point actually is that I mean, and Brentford is one of the better run clubs with one of the best, better owners as well. Is actually professional football eating itself? How long can we go on with expecting owners, whether they be Matthew Benham or whether they be Mr. or Mrs. A, to continue to subsidise football clubs to the tune of nine, ten million pounds a year. Because that's what they're doing. People are subsidising professional football clubs. And you've got to ask yourself, how long can this last? Well, I was going to say on the Dutchman's comments there was, um, obviously these these are calculated gambles by people like Benham and uh, the lad down at Brighton, which are based upon uh, getting to the promised land, which is the Premier League. And one season in the Premier League wipes out all of that debt so last season Brighton weren't challenging Sheffield Wednesday weren't challenging this season they are last season uh, Brentford were challenging uh, Ipswich were challenging and this season they've both dropped off and been replaced by those two clubs that have had big money put in in previous years I think uh, an analysis of those five clubs accounts over the last three seasons might show something towards what we're at, what we're going to see at Brentford over the next three or four seasons. Paul's absolutely spot on. You know what accounts can't do. They're, they're a black and white financial document. Is accrue, you know, any revenue of things that might happen in the future, you know, unless known. So clearly, there's a you know an unstated uh, issue within there that you know were we to go up to the Premier League, the whole thing changes. You know, accountants have to be very uh, open and honest about what they state and what um, you know what opinions they hold. And whilst you can. Um, put a few things in that may or may not happen in terms of finances. Promotion to the Premier League is not one that you can account for. It's interesting you say that as well because I mean I know for a fact that last season I mean we were in a bit of trouble because what we did is that we were very much within the FFP level. From what it seems to me is... Um, sorry Billy, what's the FFP? Sorry, FFP is financial fair play which meant that, sorry Alan, thanks for, for for making me explain, which meant that basically there's certain rules in play which means that depending on the income that comes in you can only spend a certain amount of money. But what's happened is that when we came out of Division One, we spent we we, we we spent a lot of money on players' wages. We actually really upped the budget quite a lot because we did go for it and we said, "Bang, let's go for it this season." We've got a very good team. They went for it very very well, very very close to the playoffs. But we spent a lot of money to do that in relation to the money that came in. Especially, I think it was probably the Division One money. So what happened at the end of last season? We found ourselves in a little bit of a pickle because financially we were on the edge. You know. For Brentford, a number of players' values had come up and people came in for them and the decision was, do we keep them, do we sell them, do we keep them? So the decision, as we know, was to sell a number of players which got us out of that pickle. 
interestingly, we haven't actually spent some of that money now. So that money, and, and also the FFP rules have changed slightly, I think, for the next few years. Again, we won't go into it because I'm not an expert, expert, but what's happened is that now you know about this as well. Yeah. I do. I mean, the, the point is you, you that £9.9 million turnover, you look at what the teams are going to get in the Premier League next year. You've got teams finishing bottom getting £30-something million pound potentially for coming bottom. Yeah, that, that's, that's the scale that we're at. And there's not much about FFP that I saw in the accounts, but clearly, you know, our, our crowd, we had a good piece on the podcast last week about the percentage of away fans taken, but the one I saw today, we've got the second lowest average attendance in the division. I think only Rotherham are behind us. Um, we're about 2,500 short of the team above us. So, you yeah, know, that, that puts into scale. Your FFP is restricted to your income, and our income is very, very low compared to others. It's basically our crowds is what our income is. We don't get any, any money from, from anywhere else. Well, I mean, it, it does highlight that how hard do you chase the dream before the new stadium is built? Um, you know, you, you, you can say that we, we've, you know, we, you, you can scream until you're blue in the face that we finished fifth last year, we should be finishing higher this year. What, 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 what do you have to chuck at that? What, what do you need to pay wages in, on players? You just see, you know, the Dutchman's just explained that a big chunk of our, our, our expenditure went on bonuses last year as a reward. And still that wasn't enough to keep a lot of the players who still wanted to go and gone on to better themselves. So it, it's really, you know, it, what do we need to do to, to chase the dream? And, and do we have to tread water until it's, it, the, the timing's right? There's two things that we should pick up on there. First of all, Billy, you said we, there's a lot of money that we haven't spent uh, from the, the player transfers. Well, actually, I think, looking at the accounts, we've already spent that money. So the transfer money coming in is to replace the money that we spent last year or the season before when we got promotion. As for the players and their players' wages, it sheds some light onto a player's point of view. If you think about it at the start of the season, how many players purportedly wanted to leave the club? If you're on a high bonus system salary, uh, you know, as, as Warburton had intended it to be, 18-man squad, you know, a, a small pot of money between a small pot of players, they meant that they got a, a greater share of the pot in their bonuses, and then suddenly there's 25 players sharing that pot, and the the belief within amongst the players is that the team is weaker because they've lost one or two, like Andrew Gray was always going to go, Moses was always going to go, then they're perhaps thinking, we're not going to finish 5th or 6th, we're going to finish 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th or lower, and therefore we're going to have less in the bonus pot between a bigger uh, amount of people. And that kind of plays into the psyche of some of the players like Dallas, Tumani, who are thinking perhaps, you know, Tumani's last wage packet, Dallas, young player, was he going to be on the bench? Would he be getting win bonuses? Would he be getting positional, uh, league position and bonuses? And, you know, opportunity to go to Leeds, triple his salary and get it paid... Each, each week in his pocket rather than having to win a game just to achieve the same amount of money. Tumani was on a goal bonus, of course, so that didn't really help. <laughs> so, look, anyway, we're going to go on and talk about other things about Brentford in looking forward, and now we're going to talk about the new stadium and the CPO. So, talking about new horizons, we have got a new stadium on the way. Finally, the CPO. The compulsory purchase order for a bit of land. That was a piece of land that no one wanted, but all of a sudden, everybody wanted it. Oh yeah, that's right. It's right behind us. Yeah, that's right. Claims of diggers and all sorts of stuff right behind us. So, so yeah. So, so apparently, as I'm speaking here behind us, there's tractors, there's trucks, there's cleaning instruments, and apparently they're all going down to Lionel Road to start building. So. 
just to let you know, this has come to you as a complete other exclusive on the besotted Pride of West London podcast from the Pilot Pub in Chiswick. Thank you very much. Don't say we don't give you anything. But anyway, but listen, anyway, we got CPO and um, there's all sorts of documents flying around. I tried to go through these documents. There's loads and loads and loads of them. So again, because I heard the Dutchman was on holiday in Tenerife, I thought he's got nothing better to do but to plough through these documents and come back on the podcast and have lots of beer and tell us exactly what is going down with this compulsory purchase order and are we paying too much money for this land and all sorts. Excellent. Yeah, first thing I was going to say was CPO's compulsory purchase order, but I think you've just done that bit. I mean, well, I think what's worth saying is it's a fascinating thing. You know, people, if they got the time to read some of those documents, maybe not as many as I tried to read today. And again, it's not my particular area of expertise, but, you know, what, what must be said is credit to everyone at the club involved with this because what's apparent from that is even it's someone's birthday in the background. <laughs> Terry Evans' birthday yesterday, but I don't think they know Terry Evans. But listen, but this is all good. So everyone's, everyone's claiming the birthday now, aren't they? Ooh, listen, you see, it's all going off in this part of West London, you see. You know, people stripping off and running around the pub, you know, but luckily it's not a video podcast. But listen, coming back to you and your research. I mean, what's apparent is whilst I might not be an expert, the club have, have employed experts to do this. And all the way through the, the documentation, it's clear perhaps that our, our advice clearly has um, outpowered the advice of the, the FIL holding the piece of land that's caused a lot of the problem. You know, so some dates in there, again, some facts. You know, 2008 was the first date that people started talking about Lionel Road and the first outline. Because, you know, that's, that's, that's eight years ago now, he says, being good at maths. Um, so so where, where we are now with the CPO, it's been published in the paper, which apparently is the thing, and it's the, it's the chronicle and not the informer where it was published. Informer. We'll come on to that later anyway. So they have technically, I, I believe, six weeks to appeal from that day, which is the 19th of May as the, as the backstop date. There's mention of they may appeal, but general opinion seems to be that, that that's not going to happen. The, the case seems to be pretty much thrown out of court. Um, there were other objections, which was interesting. There was 15 objections at the start, which whittled down by people pulling out voluntarily. And the actual final ruling um, really addresses all of those and the slightly smaller issues. Um, the issue from the people holding the plot of land was not about the, the stadium at all or any objections to the stadium. It was just about the price and the value of their bit of land. Um, what's key now is how much we have to pay for that bit of land. Reading through all the files... We've offered in the past on three separate occasions six point two five million pounds for that bit of land. So we've offered six point two five million to the to the person who owns it, who has obviously said this is very important, this is like my future sort of kind of milling factory, something like that, and I'm gonna to have to not have this factory, so you can have it for that type of money. That's thing and some of some of the deals gone further than others. There was a deposit paid on the first one and that deal was then aborted. The second one was aborted for reasons that we won't go into, and the figure was again mentioned in two thousand and fourteen. Um, Various valuations on the land seem to be between 1.7 and 2.5 million. 2.5 million now seems to be the figure banded around as the, the true value. Clearly, there's a value of the land itself, and there's a value of what it may be worth in the future. And the 6.25 million pounds seems to be our interpretation of what it's worth, plus what they call future hope or future use of that to try and avoid the CPO process. So, basically, in effect, what you're saying is that we said, listen here, mate. Your land is worth 1.9 million, but if we say it's 1.9 plus, it might be worth a bit more in the end and a bit of good open. Let's not go for the courts. It's 6.5, and that's what we offered to the character. Is that right? That's pretty much 6.25. That, that's that's how I've read it. Um, now, of course, uh, they're saying that it's cost them 8.25 million pounds, and that's the sort of number they're looking for. 
Um, that's, that's the people we offer 6.5 to, yeah. 2.5. Um, so the, the understanding now is that that goes to effectively our tribunal. So think, think of transfer tribunals. Both sides agree that that's where it goes. Um, that could take up to two years. But after six weeks, once the appeal date has passed, we have freedom to start effectively start developing on that while the price is negotiated in the background. But views on the price seem to be that that will be nearer of a 2.5 than a 6.25 due to the way things have panned out. Okay, so basically, in effect, characters fluffed it because he got offered 6.25 million. Um, he's gone around, he got the money offer. He said, "Listen, I can squeeze more money out of him. 8.5. I'll take it to CPO. It's got the CPO. It's got the court." Decision's not been made yet, but the word on the street is saying that he may get nearer to 2.5 million on the tribunal than the 6.5 that he was offered in the first place. I think so. I, I didn't see the words fluffed anywhere in the in the formal report, but I, that, that's how I understood it. I was going to say the guy's got uh, previous for this with the Bolton Stadium um, uh, and being involved with a piece of land when the Bolton Stadium was built uh, that I understand, who owns FLL or FIL or whatever they're called. Um, but what's interesting is the value of the land, and I'd like to ask the Dutchman, if the actual value of the land is around 2.5 million, and it's for that one office block, Capital Court, on Capital Exchange Way, what does that actually make the value of Griffin Park to Brentford, which has been valued in our accounts for the last eight or nine years at £10 million, which is clearly undervalued in any which, whichever way you look at the argument of FFL, we're understating value of FFP or FFL? FIL. FIL, which is the company that we had to we had the fight with the CPO. Dutchman. Well, the auditors this year in the accounts, referring back to that bit, because I do remember that bit, says they're still comfortable with the value of £10 million. Um, it's varied slightly, but not enough for them to make an adjustment in the account. So the, yeah, the professionals on that side of things are saying that's a, a, an accurate value. I think what, what I didn't say anyway is the total cost. The, the main reason that the, the FIL case fell out was a, a, a lack of credibility in terms of their um, revised offer to be a development partner, their experience in the relevant sectors, and also a concern over the strength of their balance sheet. So that, that, that was part of it. But also the, the main case that they had, as I said, was not about the stadium itself, but about the money, was that they were holding out that the stadium development was a viable project without that little bit of land, i.e. we could go ahead without it. And what was contested by Brentford and their, their professional advisors and held um, by all the, um, the authorities was that the numbers used by the owners of that land were, were basically wrong, basically they fluffed it, to use the technical term that I've learned. Uh, in, in the last half an hour so they use wrong measurements they use wrong rateable values they use wrong rental values to come up with a thing and what, what's been ascertained is that if you take out the capital court piece and the money attached to that that the scheme itself wouldn't be viable without that bit of land and that's what's been upheld and coming back to what Paul was saying, I mean, you talked about Bolton. From what I can gather as well, this company, FIL, have got previous, and uh, this seems to be a bit of a business for theirs, what they do. They seem to buy up land all over the place um, of particular values. They seem to be able to, uh, whether or not they get inside information or whatever, buy it up in particular places where they know that all of a sudden they can test it. I don't, I mean, possibly. It's purely a coincidence, surely. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You know, just happen to buy a plot of land in Bolton that might, may or may not be of use to them in ground development. And another plot of land you might buy in Brentford, you know, happens all the time, mate. So, so they've done that, they hold out, and they, and they increase, the, you know, manage to get increased values on this property of land, and it, well, it becomes a bit well, of a... Ron Nodes had previous of that as well. You know, so apparently so, you know. 
I can't comment on the company particularly, but you know, their own advisors resigned during the process with concerns about the um, the ethics and behaviour. So you can probably draw your own conclusions from that rather than anything that I can add. Um, what's also interesting from that is that Matthew Benham originally was in for thirty-five million pounds for the for the grounds, reading those documents, which has now increased to about fifty million pounds um, with the delays and the various changes and the um, some of the increases in the spec. There is 17.5 million due back from Wilmot Dixon on completion of the stadium once they deliver it. They've got to start building it first and then delivering it. Got to start building it first, and I think it's it's a very basic thing, but it's one perhaps that I hadn't realised. But, but what, just I'm to, what I'm going to say, and I didn't want to interrupt you because that's an interesting point because we've just talked about the player budget and the, the the ground and all that kind of stuff, but then we've got another situation here where basically there's all sorts of money being outlaid for the ground and more money, and then you've got lawyers and CPO and all, and then time and then delays, and then you've got five and then it goes up, and then and then those the developers don't actually give us any money back until after they built the ground. I mean, that's another four or five years. So basically, it seems that you keep on having to spunk more money on this and you're not even getting anything out of it. I think in, in simple terms, Brentford or, or Lionel Road Development, whichever you want to call it, we, we buy the land. So we, we acquire the land, we pay the land. So that's effectively, when we say we, we mean Matthew. God bless. Um, Wilmot Dixon, then, their job is to develop the stadium at their cost and, and everything around it. Their job is then to deliver us a finished stadium, which they do and they develop the flats during that period, after that period. They sell those at the agreed price, and there's also an agreed profit factored into that one. Yeah, it, it's as simple as that. that. That's how it's being funded. At the end of it, they will make a profit out of it, and we will end up with a stadium. This has been rather a sobering conversation, actually, because as the Dutchman has gone through the accounts and explained them to, to us, the realisation has grown on me that actually what we're talking about for Brentford on the playing side in the next two, three years is that we, what we've got to do is just remain in the championship. We've got to make sure that we remain a championship club. So whether we finish in fifth place or whether we finish in the 19th place... If we, be, if we go up, that'd be good, though, wouldn't it? Well, no, I, actually, I actually would suggest to you that probably it would be better to remain a championship club while the ground is being built and then aim... When, when you see that new ground, when you see the stands gone up, is then when you go hell-bent for going for the Premiership. So probably, a bit of a sobering thought, probably as a Brentford fan, next couple of seasons what we might be seeing is a team content to make sure that it retains its championship status rather than actually either flirt with relegation or flirt with promotion. I mean, hard-selling point when you try to bring in uh, players with, uh, with ambitions of going up to the Premier League though as well, though, isn't it? I think I think the last season though on that point about seeing the stadium I think what happened was we saw the promised land around January and we thought hello here's an opportunity that we didn't think might come up for two or three seasons and the opportunity was there I know Dave would like to talk about more about that of signing more players and getting us to that promised land at that time yeah, well, we, we can go back over. The, the thing is with all of this, you can keep going back over history and keep looking back to the times where we had other opportunities. You know, you, you, we, we always need to recalibrate to the here and now. You know, there was a chance. You know, we, were, we finished fifth. Um, there was an opportunity to um, bolster the squad last January, which may, have, may, or not, may or may not have helped us get those extra points to get into the automatic promotion places or make us stronger against Borough, or Borough would have beaten us anyway. Um, but, you know, that, that, that ifs, buts and arseholes. 
what 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 does strike me really now is that you know we, we need to have a consistent support of the regime or 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 a viable or a viable alternative if 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 the if the Brentford that you want isn't the Brentford that's being currently planned then give us an alternative um, the, the one that I see the one that we um, have well, the one that we have we have not not necessarily supported where the world was we have supported the, the one that the, the, the regime that is in place at the moment seems to be funding us to a level that we've never seen before and it's the one that's going to give us the best chance of being successful in the future if you don't want this one then I suggest you give us an alternative Paul, you, you, don't, you don't agree. I mean, we're going to try to come to this later, but let's, do, let's talk about it now. Let's... I just want to add a bit of caution there because obviously with the levels of funding that Matthew's already put in and, and, I, and I'm fully behind him 100%, you have to draw a comparison to Eddie Lewis at Bolton because if you go up to the promised land, if you get the money, but then you come back down and you can't sustain that, that initial debt um, for a number of seasons then the repercussions of that is what you're seeing at Bolton this season. So I think the timing of when we go up, which was mentioned earlier on, I think is crucial. Another season in the Championship after this would be absolutely fantastic as far as I'm concerned. If we finish 19th next season, I will be delirious. I think it's interesting you say that as well, but I also think from the, from the conversations, I think that, and, and again, we know Matt, we've talked to him a bit, like, you know, um, I think he is actually quite cautious. He, he spends his money, but he hasn't yet got cautious. And we've actually discussed the whole Bolton thing, and he knows about the whole Bolton thing, and I think he doesn't want to get into a Bolton-type situation, or not, he won't get into a Bolton situation. I remember we talked to him about something about spending some money about something like that, and he's almost like, "Do you think I made of money?" He's like, "I'm not just going to just throw money at stuff just for the sake of it, like you know." We, 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 sorry, no, we've we've seen it. We've seen it in the transfer window, in the January transfer window. The that you know the powers that be decided that we did have enough to get us safe this season. Yeah. To, 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 no, there was times where our bottle went and, 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 and you know, no, no one no one listening to this podcast please be honest, thought that it was going to be a walk in the park you know, there was, there was a few twitchy bum moments, you know, but credit where credit's due you know, after three wins and that's all it took you know, we are the safest houses and some of those, some of those um, signings that were getting lambasted actually looked like proper championship players all of a sudden. I mean, it's not only that, it's the fact that, you know, we, people were saying, you have to throw money at this, throw money at that, and this is the gambler, and you see that, and, I mean, I could never do it in a million Sundays, but to coalface, to turn around and say, we'll be fine, we don't need to do this, we don't need to do this, I'm going to take the money and I'll spend it in the summer because it's spent better, and we're all going, no, throw money, throw money, just do it, and they're just like, we'll be fine, and even when it was going horribly wrong, it was still, when we met him that time, it was, it was so cool. It was, well, I, I, you know, I, I, again, once again, I put it in. I put it to everyone. Put it in your real-world situations, and you think that sometimes spending a grand, you go, "Oh no way, it's not worth the risk." I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm, I, yeah, I'm sure it's gonna happen. I'm not. I'm not gonna spend a grand on it. And you know, there's tens. There's tens, and there's almost a hundred million pounds combined at stake here. And he was cool as a cucumber. It was ridiculous. The clear situation is. Is that what I think I want to see as a Brentford fan now is I want to see us remain in the championship while the new stadium is built. 
once the new stadium is built and the re and the revenue opportunities that, that that brings, then it's a whole different ball game. But actually, if I were if I were advising Matthew and he wouldn't listen to my advice if, if he had, if it, no because he, uh, he he's probably seen, you advise a liberal so why would he? He's probably he's also probably seen my my bank account and that was a very 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 low blow. Um, but what I would suggest is that Matthew, let's please get on building the stadium. Let's get the stadium up and running, and then let's let's go for it. That would be my advice. I just got one final thought on the matter: is what what is it that <laughs> other, than, other than who's advising who? Yeah, and that's come from an informer. What what do you think? Sorry, the if I could ask that, what do you think the accounts will look like in terms of net loss for this season? So I think that might be the answer to everything that we're discussing now. I mean, I, I don't know the answer, Paul. Really, I mean, I, I think I'm, I was slightly confused by the difference between sort of financial year end and seasons. So I'm not quite sure what what bit of income falls in what bit of income. You know, sorry, sorry, what particular year? So it'd be interesting yeah. to see where we come from in terms of you know the, the, the sale money from Tarkovsky, for example, Tamani, others. You know, to see where that fits. Assume that goes into next year's accounts. And we haven't made any purchases, but then we go and make some purchases in you know May. The year end is June close season comes if you make those in May, June does that fit into it so it's that kind of arbitrary financial year end compared with season year end you know, if, you, if you buy people in July potentially I assume that cost goes into the, the following financial year you know, so I think there's a little bit of shenanigans around so once again, the devil's in the detail. You know, yeah, of course we're all emotional creatures. Of course we want our team to win. Of course we want to keep the better players. But we've got to be realists, and, and, and that's all we ever are. You know, people accuse us of being all sorts, but you've got to be a realist. Just, just, just to finish that point, in, in the accounts, certainly there's a, you know, the, the blurb at the beginning where we talk about things general, and in there there is a clear statement from Ben and the acceptance that that's the sort of club we are. You know, he said it's, it's a, that's the world that we live in. You know, we are a club that will have to sell to to, to survive, really, and that, that's that's the fact of life. So, a few weeks ago, we had our guest Mick Liner on the podcast. Clean, clean Mick. He's very, he's very clean. Very clean, yes. But anyway, Mick asked the question. He asked, "Who is Brentford's chief scout?" And like I said, you know. Facts and figures, sometimes we know things, sometimes we don't. And we didn't know we were scrabbling around, so we thought, tell you something, this may be actually a really good subject matter for the podcast. So let's do a bit of research and we'll come down. So we've done some research so that we can come up with the facts and throw them out there. And what we found was actually very interesting. Because not in our research, not only did we find out about Brentford's scouting and recruitment system, but we, we came across information of what our rivals are doing. And the fact is that we're not alone not in any way they're all at it every single one of them using analytics is a huge way the way they run the clubs we're not sitting down there we're not on a preaching vibe at all you know what we've done is that we've had our head in books and talking to people for a good two or three weeks now and it's become so obvious to us that you know this is out there this is this is what's happening at our club this is what's happening elsewhere so what we thought is that with this podcast we'll try and throw this information out there to you to show you what's happening. You know what, there's loads of other options if you want to, you know, there's the single manager and just do everything yourself and all these other things and some of them may work, you know. But 
this is explaining something that a lot of people don't know about. We can't cover it all on this podcast tonight, so I'm going to try and probably stay up till four o'clock in the morning to try and write an article so that when you hear this podcast, you can actually click on it with relevant information, relevant articles, and you can look at it. We'll try and give you as much information as possible, and then you can make up your own mind. But the thing that I can say to you has become very obvious to me is that we're not the only ones doing it. As you say, this isn't a preach. This is about getting the information out there and helping people formulate their own opinions of, of how, uh, how the, club, the club should be run. And if, you know, if, it, if it's an alternative, then let's talk about it. You know, we've, we've, we're, we're open. If you, you know, if you, you want to come on the podcast in the, in the, ne- in the coming weeks, what's remaining in this season or in the closed season or in the early next season, and talk about a, a different way of approaching it, then, then let's do that too. Because you know, it is all about debate and all about discussion. We're going to post article links, so check this um, podcast. There'll be loads of links, and also there'll be an article on it. Loads of links with you know, articles from The Telegraph and all sorts of places where we found out what these guys are doing. You know, We look at Borough, Rory Cam and all sorts. The only difference is the other clubs are very secretive about how they go about their business. So it's actually really hard to find the info. But anyway, listen... We're going to go through and we're going to talk about exactly how Brentford's scouting system is. Then we'll talk about all the rest of it now. So Brentford starts off with our direct, the director of football. We've got two directors of football, but I think let's just concentrate on one. There's, there's one director of football, as far as I'm concerned, which makes it a lot easier, which is Phil Giles. This is not disrespecting Rasmus or anything like that, but this is for the, for the ease of this conversation here. Phil Giles is basically at the top of the tree. He's the director of football. He's the top dog who is responsible for the recruitment process and ultimately who we will or will not sign. So he's the person at the top who basically makes all the decisions. I'm going to bring Smart Odds into it. Smart Odds um, are basically Brentford's version of Opta or Prozone. Basically, Opta and Prozone, as you probably know, are a stats company. They come out with loads of stats about, you know, kicking and all sorts of stuff. Opta and Prozone are stats companies that you buy off the shelf. So people subscribe to them and they buy them off the shelf. As opposed to Smart Odds, we own it ourselves. It's our information, or not we, but Matthew Benham owns it. Information that he puts together and he's got his own IP. No one else uses it. Basically, it's ours. He uses it for his gambling people and he uses it for Brentford. So the way that we use it is probably different for the rest of the world. Then we have a performance analysis department as well. We've got Head of Football Operations guy called Rob Rowan, often described as Brentford's invisible man. What he does, honestly, he's multifaceted. I can go through it, but I think it's probably best for you to check the articles. He does so many things. Develops relationships with Premier League clubs, plays like Swift and Canelson, reports back to them. He's key part of the scouting teams, bringing players to our attention, opposition scouting, development squad management, training ground operations, catering. He sorts out the first team transport, hotels, pre-season. Honestly, pre-season planning, all sorts of stuff he does. A lot of work, I'm thinking to myself, all this for one person. Surely there should be a few people going across this, but that's how it works with us. Anyway, then we have a first-team scout. Currently, the first-team scout is Andy Scott. He's our South of England scout. His official title is first-team scout and scouting advisor for Brentford FC and Michelin. He actually works for Smart Odds, and the way they do that is that Smart Odds pays his money, but he can work across two teams. It kind of just scale, so it's actually costs us cheaper. His role is described as watching games from the under-18s, under-21s and Football League, as well as using Scout and Instat video scouting platforms, I'll talk about that in a minute, to research and study potential transfer pl- um, targets. Liaising with first-team management staff and analysis departments on strategy and player requirements, dealing with the clubs and agents to ensure maximum amount of knowledge is gained to get the best chance of securing our player targets. Then we have an analytics team, as we talked about. I said those teams were four people based at Smart Odds. Just to let you know, this is, th- this is how it works. 
works, okay? The manager comes in, says, I want a, I want such and such. I want a defender. I want a midfielder, a hard midfielder. Sure, it's going to be fast. So, on. so he puts the things into the pack, okay? Then it comes to the analytics team, right? They're, recently, the four people were based at Start Smart Odds. And what they do, they find out absolutely everything about these players. It's all quite... You know, interesting. They they find out about their background, their age, passport, injury history, availability, wages, personal life, temperament, a statistical review. They look at their stuff on the video. They basically do all this stuff on the players to see about them. Loads of players come in. Apparently, we might get thousand players in, and it's through these guys to sift through them. These guys are sort of kind of like. And this is not disrespecting their role, but they're like the pawns in the game. They're the ones where we would get lots of information in. The information may come in from, you know, I might, I might ring up the club and say, I've heard of a brilliant player for Dulwich Hamlet, and you should have a look at him. And they'll have a, you know, they'll send it down to these guys. Or Dean Smith may say somebody, or one of their mates from the Premier League may say someone, or an academy person, or they may find someone on the computer that they've sussed out from Bolivia. So basically, all this information come in, and it's up to these guys to basically sift through them. They might get a thousand of these guys. Guys, and at the end of the day, what they'll do is they might come out and say, out of them a thousand, 15 look like they're okay. Those 15, then what they do is that they pass them on up to the next stage. The next stage is the scouting team, the people who actually look at these players. So of those thousand, 15 of those players, I'll get passed on to Andy Scott, Rob Rowan, I'll be told maybe sometimes Rasmus, but you know what I'm saying? But it seems that Andy Scott, Rob Rowan, the main people in the scouting, and also we've got a scout in Ireland, right, as well. And these people give a detailed review. So they'll watch the player online again using this software. They'll watch the player live as well, and they'll compile reports. So what you do is that that scouting team, after that, they'll come back and they'll say, of those 15 players, I think five of them are OK. So then what they do is at that stage, the player is passed up the line to Dean Smith, Richard O'Kelly and Fleming Peterson and they have a look to see if the player matches the spec that they're given now if it's cool the next minute well, they'll, they'll go and have a look at them you know and all this kind of stuff then it gets passed up the line again to there's like a there's like a little board who turns around and say right are we going to sign this player there's four people are Matthew Benham Phil Giles Rasmus Ankerson and Dean Smith and they basically got to all agree on a target. And if they agree on the target and they say, right, we're going to go for it out of those five, we're going to go for this one, then it's up to Pill Giles to get the thumbs up from Matthew Benham, gives a bit of guidance and money, then he has to go out, speak to the agent, get the best deal, and Bob's your uncle. So that's basically how the system is. Well, any questions? Um, there is a head coach being advertised at the moment, so I, I assume that head coach is going to fit into... That exact, stru- that, that, ex- that exact structure. This is the system that I'm talking about until then. Now what's happened is that we've actually advertised for a head scout because what Brentford have decided, it looks like, that they want to reshuffle a few things. So what they've done is that they've taken the analytics team, right, which is the, 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 pros, the pro zone or the opta, and they thought, tell you something, let's chop half of them. We're only going to use two of those guys, right? And instead what we're going to do is we're going to get in a chief scout and a northern scout instead. So basically they've got more men on the field as well. They cut down the analytics department, so they're still doing the stuff. So we've got two guys doing like the same amount of work trying to do it, but what we've got is more people on the field. So what's happened is that you've got a structure which has slightly changed because now you, what you've got is a chief scout who's going to be also in the decision-making process. So when these analytics guys go, right, here we go, we've been given this information from the chief scout, 
that this guy in Darlington is brilliant. They'll chunk the information, they'll send it back out, then Chief Scout and all these other people will go out and start having a look at it. I mean, ultimately, there's a, there's a lot of information, a lot of players out of there, and, it's, and really this is about filtering that information and getting the most value out of it, I guess, with um, you know, the least amount of work being done by the, in, to, some, to, to some extent by the head coach because you know, I, I, my, my personal opinion is, is let the head coach you know, let him run the football team um, and let other, play, let other people go out there, understand what he's looking for and find them. I mean, they talk about, it's very important as well to know, I mean, everyone talks about scouting and going on the road and watching players. There's only many, many players that you can watch as a person when you're driving up to Newcastle or Liverpool or whatever. And everyone, every single team uses um, scouting systems like there's one called Y-Scout, which basically is a subscription-based, fully searchable, minutely detailed database that covers every minute of every game in every major league in the world. Its database has got 273,000 players from 30,000 teams playing in 150 divisions in 80 countries so basically what you do is that if you want anything you can drop down and say I want to see a tackle by Peter at some club in Bolivia and they will show you all the clips of that play you can watch anything about anyone and a lot of the initial scouting is done by watching videos lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of video stuff before people actually start going out on the road and watching people this is a very interesting important thing to do and we do that as much as anybody else does because it's a very important part of scouting you know so, so it's about getting some more continuity into the process. I mean, I think what you're saying there is, is is quite true, and the fact is that it's a matter of what each club wants to do. I know a lot of people are turning around saying, you know, we should go back to the original system where the the manager is, he does everything. He's got total control. I think the problem that we the problem we have now, and, and this is something to look around what's happening in the league. The problem we have is like every not being funny. Everyone is doing this, right? There's this whole laugh about, oh, look at Brentford there, the statistics and stuff. I'm not being funny. Every single team has got an analytics department. Some of them are bigger than ours. We've got two people at Smart Odds dealing with this. Some teams have got four, five, six people dealing with it and all sorts of stuff going on, and they've got more money to spend than us. So we have to be sort of quite careful about how, we, how, how, we, how we're going about our business because we've got, you know, we can have the manager that does everything, but the problem we've got now is there's loads of information. There's loads of information coming through and you need to be able to process information or somebody needs to process the information and I think where it comes down to it comes down to it seems the information being decent being good because if the information is rubbish then it's all rubbish the person processing the information or the people processing the information are good and then the people at the top analyzing that information and making the right decisions and i think i think you know one of the key points is is that the information we get in is different because it is the information from you know the smart odds information whereas you know the, the a lot of the other clubs are using the same information maybe in a different way but maybe there is a competitive advantage because we are actually getting some different information and this is what this is what this is all about for me is actually finding a way to compete with all these you know <coughs> make no mistake we haven't got a massive budget um, we, you know, we, we all know where we are. We all know, I think, what we second lowest in terms of number of people through the door on average. Um, so we have to find ways of being cleverer, and, and that kind of is the key for me. Yeah, I think that there is the information, but there's also the way you analyse it. I'm sure they talk about analytics. It's how you analyse that information and, the, and how you make it work for you. I think the point for me is that sometimes gets missed is this isn't replacing any of the other methods 
And if the point is that, you know, if Billy recommends a fullback from Dulwich Hamlet and that goes into the model, you know, that keeps those avenues open. This isn't replacing traditional scouting methods or, you know, gut instincts or anything else. It's adding an extra layer to make sure that you narrow down the thousands of people down to the, you know, the two, three, four, five that you want to pursue. And that, you know, that has to be a good thing. I think as well is, you know, if, if we're looking back to how things have been, you know, if you look back from like the, the Dodgin and Callahan and McClintock, Perham and Webb and Nodes eras, each of those were big personalities, big managers that would come in, but they would all have their own visions about how the club and how and how the how the system should work, and they all wanted to basically start from scratch. So you basically you would be be clearing out a, a pre, the previous guy's squad of players because he didn't rate any of them and bringing in a new lot. So it was almost like a generational thing. It, it took two three years before the players you know he got his players in but now you know there's this kind of this vision of the way that Uwe Rosler's been playing the way that Warburton's been playing and the way that we've been playing over you know a couple of coaches this season um, and it's about at- attacking slick passing football so that's that's the vision and then as Matt's alluded to you know if one head coach goes then they find this this team finds someone else that fits into that vision and so we as fans get continuity in, in, in so much as that we get attractive football ongoing um, and you know the squad doesn't need to be cleared out um, systematically when a new coach comes in so you know, ultimately when you invest in a player you're investing in a player for the possibly the whole term of his contract rather than until you, the, the coach gets sacked it's interesting because we're going to be you know, listening to an interview with Ted Knutson, who, like I said to you, he was uh, part of the Brentford analytics team for a year. Have you listened to him? He's a really interesting character. He's Americans, as some people say, Americans speaking about football, we can't have that. But no, you know, but just listen, but listen to him. It's very interesting. But what is more interesting is obviously um, the analytics team has been changed because we can only assume that whatever the information that they were giving out wasn't to Brentford's liking, so they decided to change it. And I think that what's happened is that. What we know is that we used to have a particular system that we used for quite a number of years at Smart Odds. I think it was a very simple system that they had, and it worked for them with their professional gambling, and then they moved it into the football, OK? And they, used to, they still had that same quorum of three or four people that used to decide on the player. There was Mark Warburton, there was Uwe Rosler, there was um, there's Matthew Benham, and they used to sit around and they used to decide if they wanted a player. They used to have the analytics that threw into the pot, they used to scout in front of the pot, and they used to do that all the time, all the, all, all the way through. They used to use this league table thing, which we used to do, and, and it worked well for us because it signed players like Scott Hogan, Andre Gray, Hotter, all these people worked great for us. I think last season, obviously we know this now, or this season, with all the changes that we've been made, we thought, listen, we want ourselves to be bigger and better. You know, it's a new revolution for Brentford. We're going to get a different analytics team. We're going to try out things. We're going to be really different. So they put in the Knutson, they tried a few things, and it obviously didn't quite work. So it looks like they're going to be stepping back to the things that did work for us, which was when we signed the Grey and the and the Hotter and all those people as well, sort of simplify things a little bit and change the system up. When you listen to the Knutson speech, if you can try and not not get too hung up on the word soccer or offensive and defensive and listen to, listen to how he explains things, I think I think you'll understand why he was hired. You know, you, you realise that, you know, this guy's got an insight and, you know, whether, whether ongoing is, is a complete and utter answer, but he was certainly worth a try. This is why I think some of the teams that we will talk about in a minute if we don't run out of time that are sort of arrivals, they've been completely secretive about it, is that football people don't really want to know about analytics. All they want to know is about how your team does. So the fact is that what happens in the background 
it's almost like it should stay in the background and these things should happen because this is happening anyway. And it's almost like better if it just happened and then all of a sudden we found out we've got a great centre-back and we've got a forward, you know. All this trying to explain to people about sort of all the facts and figures and stuff like that, it, 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 it detracts. And there's a really interesting article by Rory Campbell, who's basically is um, Alistair Campbell's son. And he's actually, um, if, if he's at West Ham, his, his role is a technical scout and analyst, right? And interestingly, because his background is very similar to Matt Benham's. He's an Oxford graduate. And he's a successful poker player. Like, you know, he understands all about this kind of professional gambling world. Then all of a sudden he's moved into football analysis. Okay? So he's talking about the fact that you know, Leicester signed Kante and Pae and Mares, okay, for a combined 16 million, where Man United are spending 70 million on Fellaini and Herrera and Schweinsteiger. You know what I'm saying? He said, you know, the problem there is that where the analytics world has struggled is building a bridge to the traditional football world to infiltrate the information better. It's actually quite presumptuous to give out loads of information that makes perfect logical sense from a mathematical standpoint and expect a sport that has developed for decades to accept it overnight. I would say, we would say this remains the biggest challenge. You have to understand the dynamics and the personalities of the people you're working with to be able to communicate the information. I think this is why analytics has not penetrated football like maybe other businesses would have expected. And basically you're saying, this is, this is analytics. You're, you're going out there as a mass person trying to explain to a footballer or to a punter or to all these people, listen, this is how it goes about CPIs and CPOs or whatever it may be. And it hits a brick wall sometimes and people say, let's just go back to traditional, even though it makes perfect sense. It, it is human nature. You look back up throughout history, if you don't understand understand something and it, it, it's, it's taken as it, it must be bad you know you can take that back to dunking witches that were that were you know just trying to get people to take medicine if, if people don't understand something it, it's a threat it's bad um it needs to be explained better yeah i mean as a brentford fan you know we are used to going and having to queue up for rubbish toilets um, the hospitality at the club is delivered uh, in confined constricted circumstances not having a go at it but that's that's how it is and yet at the same time we're expected to deal with this brave new world of analytics and you can understand why some people can't quite marry up that there is Brentford in this small cramped run down old ground like Griffin Park is which we all call home and love dealing with the brave new world of analytics it's a ma it's, it's difficult to marry up sometimes it's difficult to marry up I mean and, but the fact is and we're going again if we get the time because we're running out of time so much now we talk about the other team you will see how much these are ingrained into all these other teams and if we were to change our system we'll still have to do this so what we do is that we'll just get rid of smart odds and you will employ some people in-house and then we'll buy prozone and spend like you know 10 grand a year on prozone and we'll kind of do exactly the same thing with their information but what we're going to do is that we're going to go over and listen to Ted Knutson speaking on Ask blog about, you know, the role and analytics, and he's talking about how, you know, the, the coach of Dortmund came over to speak to Matt Benham because he was banging to what we were doing, thought it was really interesting what we were doing, and it's a really interesting listen to this, so just check this out, and we'll come back at the back end, and we'll chat about this a bit more. Now, unless you've been living under a rock or in a cave somewhere, you'll have noticed that stats and data are playing an increasing part of the football story for all of us, whether you've got the Stats Zone app on your uh, Android phone or your iPhone. Uh, you can get all the stats during games and after games. Uh, there are people who are crunching data, and, of course, data and stats are being used by football clubs in various ways. So I'm delighted to welcome to the show to chat a bit about this, uh, Ted Knutson. Uh, Ted, you started or you founded the, the website StatsBall. 
from. Yeah, that's right. So look, let's let's talk about your your background a little bit and what it was that made you fill this particular niche because um, when it comes to football writing and football blogging, you know, we found different niches that have filled uh, down the years, whether it's a specific club or you look at what Michael Cox did in terms of tactics and zonal marking. What was it that that drove you towards this side of things? Uh, for about a decade, I worked in professional gambling. Uh, I was... Um... I, know, I had a lot of different roles at uh, PinnacleSports.com, which is like one of the big internet bookies. Right. And uh, I was lead trader for the English Premier League. And back at the end of 2012, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I had to undergo surgery and then uh, chemo. And I couldn't work. And at that point, I was like kind of going crazy because I, I, I get really bored and I didn't want to play any games, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I needed something to take my mind off of it. Mm. And I'd work on some, some baseball modeling and followed the baseball stats movement for a decade at that point. And I was like, well, there's, there's finally some information available on soccer. And I'd wanted to do it since, uh, since 2005, I think. But right. we just never had public data to look at it. So I started poking around. And obviously, I'm an Arsenal fan. And I, I started looking at them and Barcelona and the different leagues. And, and got, got terrified of, immediately by what you saw about Arsenal, I'm sure. Sometimes frustrated, <laughs> but also like the, the transfer stuff. I wanted to, to take a look ahead of time at the rumors and say, you know, mm. does, this, does this guy look like he's any good? Or does this guy look like, you know, he's crap or whatever? Right. Uh, you, you kind of get the, the the sniffer dog out and, and see if it makes any sense. <laughs> so that's what I did. And, um, you know, at the time, there wasn't really anything that, that collected a lot of the stats writing. So I, I founded the site with, uh, with a guy named Ben Pugsley uh, and Colin Trainer came along so, shortly afterwards. Those guys have had a little bit of jobs in and around football, uh, though I can't tell you where they work because it's mm. top secret. Sure. No problem. Then in 2014, uh, I was uh, at lunch with somebody just meeting up and, and chatting and the owner of Brentford um, came across the street and we hit it off. We we dislike some of the same people in the gambling uh, gambling community, so that that's always a good thing. You're like, no, I really hate that guy. He's like, oh, that guy's a prick. You're like, yeah, okay, cool. And he's like, hey, I want to hire you. And I'm like, I'm just here for lunch, but we should talk. You sort of created your own models to look at what they were doing and how productively they were doing it. Is that that's more or less it? Yeah, exactly. So okay, so look, you're doing those and you're putting those models together and you're doing them in a, a, a sort of an understandable way in graphic terms that people can see these various um, qualities or or attributes that players have, and so they uh, they fill out certain things that they're good at and then they're short on on other things. So is that what did the guy from Brentford know that this is what you were doing? A little bit. Um, one of the frustrations that they had had was, you know, they'd been to all these conferences and talked to all these people, and everything's the same, right? You can do it like Udinese do, have tons of scouts everywhere. You just have to do it better or do it bigger or do it this way. And you're like, man, yeah. you know, the, it's little old Brentford, or, and, and they had just bought Michelin at the time. Like, they can't do it bigger and better. That's, that's basically impossible for their budget. Um, but um, he had worked in gambling for a long time and, and has a, I think a degree from Oxford in, in maths or something. So like the way that I was approaching it seemed really interesting. So what was your remit there? Was it to assess players that were on lists that they were interested in and see if they fit within what the manager wanted or what the team was lacking? I kind of had a, a, a it was a it was a big unformed job that I, I I kind of filled out myself to some extent. Half of it was recruitment, so like that, or you know, you get a name from an agent, you get a name from an ex coach or an ex player says, "Hey, this guy's really good. Yeah. You should take a look at him." And so we did that, and we turned through I don't know over a thousand players in a year based off of the stats. You're able to to do it much faster in that way. Basically, not finding the best players quickly, but usually sorting out the crap like there's so many bad players that get sent to clubs and if you have to watch every one of those it takes yeah. a long time yeah 
Um, but occasionally, you're like sifting for gold. You're panning there, and, and occasionally you're like, oh, wow, this guy might actually be really good. Let's take a look at him. Right. So that was half of my job. And okay. then like 25% of my job was sort of building better tools and metrics and finding uh, ways to analyze our own teams and opposition scouting. And then another 25% is literally just sort of research, better ways to play the game. How can we find competitive advantages? Uh, you know, how can we how can we play better football, essentially, or maybe find coaches that, that play better football? Right. So you're using the data to shape the way that a football team plays. Yeah, potentially. Or just give advice. Like, right. I, that's really what I did. I, I didn't shape it. I, I, I said, hey, this might be a good idea. The data stuff is a bit like a pirate treasure map. Like mm. sometimes you, you, you go searching for treasure and your, your ship, you know, crashes on the rocks sometimes you go and it's just literally a case of fish that was buried somewhere and, and someone came back to it but a lot of times it's like oh this is really interesting let's dig into it it could be player wise it could be funky stuff like you know what's this team doing that seems to make them a lot better than they used to be a couple of years ago can you explain just a little bit uh, to to me and maybe to listeners what expected goals are and how that might then influence the way that a manager a views his team or b sets his team up to play either offensively or defensively. Okay. Um, so if, if you take away the words expected goals, because that's slightly confusing, there are mm. two other ways that you could talk about it. One of them is goal probability, uh, which also sounds like, you know, don't, don't touch me, I'm math, I'm scary. Uh, the other one would be shot quality. You want to take higher quality shots. Right. And, and we know that um, distance has a big factor. So the further you are away from a goal, the harder it is to score. Easy, simple. Yeah. Um, also, the, the wider you are, uh, the easier it is for keepers to make saves because there's less of the goal to hit um, or you have less to, to shoot at. Sure. So that's a big factor. Um, two other factors are, are headers versus feet. Headers are scored at about half the rate across the same distance or as feet. Um, it's, it's harder to hit a ball with your head. You know that. Sure. And then the last one is crosses. Crosses are fairly inefficient, and, and even foot shots off of crosses are less likely to be goals than you know one that a guy controlled ahead of time and then shot. So you mean like first-time finishes? Um, yeah, pretty much. I, re regardless of how you slice it, it's just a cross is, is much more complicated to hit because you have to redirect it from the side to go forward. Okay. So like when you think about it in terms of how you play football, you're like, all right, that makes some sense. Um, and then when you crunch it across like thousands and thousands, I mean, I, we're probably at like a million shots in the whole database, mm. you start to get the concept to say, okay, this shot from this location with these things attached to it, whether it's a cross or a completed dribble or a through ball, is this likely to go in the goal? How do you find the balance between, okay, this is this is what we know from this data, but this is human error or human frailty to a certain extent or it's outside factors like pressure or the, the importance or the moment in a game when it happens where it might be it might be just the pressure might be too much for a guy. Yeah, and, and like it's it's very difficult to, to put that in a model. Like a model is a snapshot of mm. reality, but it's it's not correct because it doesn't have everything in it. And it never will. Mm. But it what we found is that by including things like this, you're able to get more correct data than you would just by having approximations and guesses. And you know, if you sometimes I watch a game live, especially in a stadium, and I'm like, you know, I don't think that we played that well that half. But like, you know, you get caught up in the moment, or you don't see everything because you're sort of from afar. But then I go back and I look at it, and I'm like, wow, we actually had a couple of really good chances that I kind of forgot about. But mm. you go back and you watch it and you see it. Um, so it's it's trying to gives you just a little more objective information. Now. Arsenal are able to recruit from all over the world, and they would want to find the best possible players. 
like El Nenny is, is is someone no one had looked at, and I'm I'm pretty connected to to a lot of uh, different scouting organizations, and like you know I'd never even heard of this guy, and that's that's telling you sort of how far afield they went. Arsenal have they they bought Stat DNA yeah uh, a few years ago. They have one of the best analytics groups in the world, um, and I'm not saying this you know just because I know the people like I respected them well before I ever met them. Um, they also have a pretty big head start. They have their own uh, proprietary data that they that they collect, and so they're doing more. And if you look at who Arsenal have bought, like their transfers are pretty good. the The question is always, you know, how much does Wenger control? Could they potentially have better tactical elements, or could they have slightly better training? Um, you know, and and that's that's not really for me to say. But if you look at the the stuff we know happens from the analytics side, you can say the transfers actually we've bought have been pretty good. And then, you know, what happens behind the scenes? You never quite know. Arsenal are using stat DNA and using their own proprietary data and software to identify targets based on what? So, for example, Arsene Wenger will say, we need a midfielder who is tidy on the ball, whose passing stats are X, who can run all day long or whose you know, stamina brings something different to the midfield, go and find me those players in these leagues based on that information. Is that sort of where the way it would work? Yeah, that's, that's probably what it is. Like he describes what he wants and then they quantify that into some sort of you know, set of numbers that they're able to look up and, and then there you go. Mm. And they, what they probably th- then do is break it down into these are the top 10 targets. Let's have scouting, you know, take a really close look at it. Yeah. And, and then like the scouting gets involved and then, you know, the best of those get um, sent to the, the coaches likely. And how close are we? I mean, you did, there was an article this week uh, that you did with Raphael Honigstein and he's talking about Pep Guardiola shaking his head at, at Bastian Schweinsteiger because he took a couple of shots from distance, um, which, uh, as you explained already, that you shoot from distance, you're less likely to score. I mean, it, it's self-evident in a way. But uh, is that beginning to shape or is it now shaping the way that, that coaches instruct their teams? It's certainly shaping some of them. And some of them, it's not like obvious uh, in that they don't say, hey, you have to take better shots all the time. Sometimes they're constructing training sessions where this is the goal and, and you can't shoot from outside of it. So they're basically trying to find ways to penetrate inside the box. And if you look at Arsenal, they have a lot of really good movement inside the box. And that's something that's been a Wenger uh, trademark for a really long time. Our, our defense often fluctuates, but usually our attack has been very good. And it, it's kind of funny. There was, a, there was a stat that was quoted earlier this year, and it was quoted as a negative. Uh, Arsenal have the fewest goals from outside the box in the Premier League. That's by design. Like, mm. <laughs> that's actually a good thing because they're not taking shots from outside the box, and so they don't score those. Um, you know, if they scored a couple more, that it might be useful, obviously. But it'd be nice if you know Ramsey and Alexis and Ozil and Theo hadn't all just crapped themselves when they're in the box sometimes, <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it, that was the biggest possible frustration with Gervinho. That, that that guy was able to get free in the box so many times, and he was so bad at finishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a frustrating player, all right. I'm going to move on very swiftly from that before I start <laughs> before I start having flashbacks. Uh, in the piece he did with Honigstein, there's a very interesting uh, stat uh, about Obama Yang, who uh, I know that you a couple of years ago were talking about him as a guy who could potentially, and I think that's a really important word, is potentially the, the numbers showed that 
he could be a guy to who, who could develop into something a bit special or a bit different. Um, and that, that has been the case. But even this season under a new manager at Dortmund, um, he's become more effective again. Can you just sort of explain why that is? So back in, I think, 13, 2013, the summer of, um, I started poking around the data and I, I, I saw this French kid um, who I, I, he's really fast and he scored a lot of goals in France. And you're like, all right, well, you know, it, the, the thing with players uh, for most clubs anyway, except for the super rich, is that, you know, you're looking for value and Wenger has always looked for value as well. Uh, so you're like, OK, this guy looks like he could potentially be quite good. You never know how they're going to transition in leagues and does he fit your particular style, etc. Mm. But you know, I think they paid maybe 13 million euros for him. So at that point, you're like, well, maybe we, we just roll the dice. Um, you know, the, the Dortmund people would say that when he came there initially, he was, a, he was a wide forward. And part of that was because they had Lewandowski. And obviously, you're not going to just displace Lewandowski. But he did fine as a wide forward. And then last year, um, he got moved central, uh, I think, th- through part of half of the year anyway. And he was doing okay, but not great. And then, so full disclosure, um, the owner of Brentford uh, talked to Thomas Tuchel a lot while he was on his essentially sabbatical year. Right. And, and some of the concepts that I talk about um, you know, went directly to Tuchel. So you see that um, basically Lewandowski looks like a center forward. He gets a ton of shots centrally. Aubameyang looked very different. He looked like he got a lot of through balls. He, he'd get things with his pace, but he wasn't necessarily getting all of these great chances in the center of the box, which meant that he wasn't scoring potentially as many goals as he could have. Under Tuchel, you just see completely change, and he's always in the center of the box, and he gets a ton of, of shots, and he looks like one of the best center forwards in the world. And part of that's a tactical adjustment. Part of it's probably a coaching adjustment, and mm. part of it might just be him getting more used to playing centrally in, in Bundesliga. It, it, you're never going to have all the information. You're just trying to make slightly better decisions as you go. Like a whole new world. Sometimes it's difficult, isn't it? Because uh, people will say, well, stats don't tell you everything. Uh, but nobody ever claims that they did. And I have to say that, you know, I, I'm with you sometimes when I'm watching a game and then I have to go back and I have to do something like player ratings. And you, you've got a perception in your mind of how a player has played or what sticks in your mind perhaps are the three passes that didn't go to where they were going to go, but the 52 other passes that went exactly where they were going to go. Uh, you, you forget about those and you see, well, he's only misplaced three or four passes in the, in the entire game. So having the stats afterwards with a bit of distance and with a bit of hindsight, it does, it does sort of change your perception of what you've seen or your first impression of it anyway. Yeah, I was so Mesedoz was the classic example, right? Like he played on on some Arsenal teams that didn't necessarily have the best forwards early on. Yeah, and, and that's still know. the case, by the way. Well, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, I really like Welbeck, um, uh, uh, but so well, what do, what do the numbers tell you about Welbeck? So Welbeck's very interesting. Um, in that, like, he's had a couple of up and down years, and and last year you would have looked at him and said, "Man, he's incredibly unlucky." Uh, but like everybody else looked at him and said he's been terrible, which is both of these things are true, right? <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of times we, we found that you know getting in position to, to have the shot, even if you don't always score it, means that you're actually you know you're doing the right thing. Right. So so Welbs being there, you know, you look at him, you like he's got all of the the tools. Sometimes he just has to turn it on. And he had a couple of years at United where you saw it start to click, and I think now he's he's just fine. Um, and I, I like him a lot. But also, you know, when he's setting up forwards that aren't scoring, he's not getting assists and it's not very impressive. But like he's still doing his job. And that's a great thing because he's one of the very few people in the world that are capable of doing these things. So like, you know, it's 
it's it's the stats that, that give us indicators. It's not just goals and assists. It's about setting up shots. It's about you know making tackles like Kokolan does. Yeah. Uh, every player has has limitations to them. There are very few Lionel Messi and, and Ronaldo's. But you know, when you combine them together, uh, hopefully with some objective information, you can build a better roster than than you might otherwise. Leal, did you find that interesting? Um, I did. I, I did find it interesting. I I think the um, <laughs> it's quite. I think one of the interesting parts is that there's a lot of talk about as much about us. Um, there's some general thoughts. Uh, one of the general thoughts is um, about how you know crosses aren't particularly productive. And um, it occurred to me last night when I watched the game when Viva passed when Viva passed the ball out to Woods when when Viva looked like he was in a good position to score and then the ball was crossed back to Viva and he fluffed it completely and it, and that kind of occurred to me that that kind of made some sense in some respects to me um, and 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 also you know but on the other side he talks about Arsenal a lot and if I'm honest I watch Arsenal at the moment and Arsenal almost play like a you know, like a team of mathematicians. Um, you know, we, we, we've all been watching them in the last few, you know, the last few months, and I, and, and it worries me that maybe there's an element where things are, can be overcomplicated, and therefore the natural way to do things starts to get lost. So, you know, I, you see both sides. There's a balance, and it's finding the balance. And I'm not saying that. And I just wonder if that's kind of Arsenal's problem now is that they're ultimately overthinking everything. You know, on the pitch, it's been overthought. Yeah, for me, a lot of the stuff he said didn't really ring true. True, because if you say, okay, this is how you score a goal, this is the most efficient way of scoring a goal. You're going back to the Charles Hughes, Graham Taylor days, where you just lump it outfield and you've got more chance of scoring. I also think that if you get, a, he didn't say that, but <laughs> but but that but that you know that it follows. You know, this is how you score a goal. You've got more chance of scoring a goal with this way than that way. But if you think about crosses, I mean, uh, what, one of the important things about crosses is that if you get to the byline and pull it back, yeah, it's, it's still coming from the side, but you defend, you, you, the, your defenders have been turned. So, you know, you stand much better chance of scoring. So there's, there's lots of other things. And all that stuff about you've got more chances scoring if you're in the box than if you're out the box, but you'll get more chances of scoring out the box. That crazy gang analogy shows you that the stats and the and, and the data has been used for longer. They'd obviously worked out that that system was with you know with lumping it up and getting big brutes up there to do it was was the way of, of, of getting getting more goals and, and it and it worked. So this you know now they're lauded as a crazy gang and they're almost like heroes. But that only works for a while because you, you other teams suss you out. Like other teams are sussing out Arsenal. Which, which is why you have to stay ahead of the game. But it's, yeah, it's only about probability. All this is trying to do is improve the odds, isn't it? And that's the, that's the human factor in it. It's not saying you can't shoot from outside the box. It's not saying you can't cross the ball in. It's just working out as a general strategy where the most success is. And you can't argue with the odds that prove that certain statistics are, are better than others. You know, the, the key to it is, as you say, do Arsenal overthink it? Why Barcelona just lost three games on the spin despite probably being the best team in, in Europe? You know, it's about the human interpretation of it. And that's the beauty of the game, isn't it? All, all, the, all the stats are trying to do is help inform, you know, that, that decision. Yeah, I hope it doesn't remove all creativity out of it where dribbling becomes something that the players don't do. They have to do something else, you know. I think the, the natural expression of a footballer and, 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 and kind of the, the sort of like making it up and the, the sort of like the, the, the ad hoc creativity, it needs to be embraced still. People like Canos, who are, you know, potentially masters of wing play and being able to take players on, you don't want, you don't want, them, you don't want that coached out of them. 
they just said what I was going to say. I was just going to say Yotta was discovered through this process, and Yotta's probably the most skillful, creative, wonderful player I've ever seen in a Brentford shirt. So you know that that proves that there's analysis behind this. is more than just about what you should do in certain situations. No one told him what to do. A bit like Canos, you know, he was a genius that came through this system. Yeah, I think you need a variety of players at a side. I think, you know, you, you know the judge can score from outside the box. So you, if you create some chances for him outside the box, great. You know he can also run into the box and cause havoc. So a variety of players with a variety of styles. But what you don't do is you don't play to your weaknesses. You don't lump the ball into the box if you're playing against uh, an Ipswich or someone like that and you've just got a load of little players up front. So try to keep strict time here so we'd be cut off. So loads of stuff that we wanted to talk to you about. But look, what we're going to do, we're going to put this in writing so you can actually check it on the Besotted website, besotted.co.uk. Check it on our Facebook page as well, besotted.co.uk. Best thing, go around the table. Anyone could take any view that they want to about recruitment process, anything like that, just to just give their own words of wisdom or their thoughts or any stuff that they've read on. Laney? Um, I think the thing that stands out for me, really, is so Knutson's um, mention of, you know, stats not providing all the answers and no one ever intended them to be. They're, they're just a, a, an aid and assistance. And I, and I think I'm, I'm hoping what, what the podcast done tonight is it just gets a lot more information out there, just gives us a better understanding of how the setup is currently. Um, you know, that, that's it, basically. Nick, there are lies, damn lies, and there are statistics. Okay. Um, the Elod. Um, I think one thing that occurred to me tonight as we discussed it, and it may, it may have sounded, if people are listening, that we sort of went from, oh, stats great, to, oh, stats not so great. But I think what the, the general feel I get is that, is that we kind of get, we, we do get why you would want to use statistics to find players that other clubs aren't finding. But, but, I, but I also think we are all a little bit suspicious of once you sign those players using statistics to tell them how they should play on the park. And, and, and that's just a sort of a general summing up of how I think, you know... Which is interesting as well because everyone rumps it into the pot. So if they don't like, like yeah. one part of it, they yeah. say it's all rubbish. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, again, I'm not, not, not a preaching thing, but the, the, the signing players bit, bit is... Well, it's not signing players, it's... Shit filtering. I call it shit filtering. Yeah, yeah. You've got a thousand people and you knock it down to ten. It's not rocket science. It, it, it works because like nine out of them ten, they're going to be right. That's fair enough. The other part of it, like, <laughs> must admit, you mustn't cross in, you mustn't shoot from outside the area, you must all these other things. Those are kind of some of the things that we love about our game, as we say. So if all of a sudden it's like, you know, a judge isn't going to shoot from 35 yards because he feels like it, you feel we've lost a bit of our game. But it's, you know, statistics have been used in every every walk of life. Anyone that applies for any job, biometrics and 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 using answers and people's responses, it's, u- it's used everywhere. It's just, it's just a way of filtering out, as you say... Shit. Yeah, filtering out people that aren't suitable to your system and finding out ones that, that most are. I mean, for me, if you think about recruitment, I think, as Benford fans, we should just relax. I mean, we've never had a say in recruitment. We never will. Uh, the recruitment's going to happen. We're going to get some shit players. We're going to get some good players. And, you know, ultimately, it's the amount of money you've got is going to pick out the better players. And, you know, that, that's, that's what we've got to look forward to. We've got a decent budget in a decent league. We're playing really good football. And a lot of our players are good. Some of them aren't. As Lady said, any other interview in, in any walk of life, you use biometrics, psychometrics to just give you extra information about whether you should or shouldn't employ that person. This is no different. 
Um, exactly as Matt says, let it not dictate how you play football, but it certainly helps with the recruitment. But I think what it also does is it gives you access to a much larger group of people that you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have. You, know, you can't scout the world unless you've got something more than men on the street in flat caps, you know, watching them from the sidelines. You know, this opens up a much wider range of people and you, you know, instead of 500 down to 5 you can get 50,000 down to 5 and the stats tell you then that you should get a better player at the end of it I think, I think for me uh, the thing that's opened, opened my mind is the fact that I mean looking at Bar- Borough and I did quite a lot of research into Borough how similar they are to us <laughs> they've been looking at us how similar they're set up with their DOFs and their um, head of recruitment and their analytics department and stuff like that not quite sophisticated as us but they've got more money than us so I looked at that and I was like a little bit like cool this is really really interesting exactly the same as us but no one talks about them and the other thing is also is talking about our system and we did, haven't had a chance to talk about it as much but it's interesting because people talk about different roles in it, the director of football as such. The interesting thing is that, in effect, Phil Giles did the same role as what Mark Warburton did um, three or four years ago. Mark Warburton was, you know, a particular part of the first and Phil Giles was. But interestingly, Mark didn't actually want to do that job because, and Mark said this personally as we spoke to him back at the Porter Cabin when we had an interview, and he said to us, said, Mark, why don't you, you know, want to go back to sporting director? He says, I don't want to do that job. It's boring. You know, I don't want to sit inside there and do contracts and speak to agents and sort out all the politics and all that kind of stuff. I don't want to be coaching the players. It's a very technical job where you're sitting down there and you basically managing and sorting a lot of stuff out an organized person who goes out there you've got your ambition you've got your targets and you basically sort a load of shit out and that's kind of kind of what he does but for me the key is in the pawns in the game the people are actually kind of doing the filtering and the scouting those are the ones that have got to be top of their game because they're the ones that are coming up with the goods of us if they ain't coming up with the goods then it all falls down so obviously the the analytics department thing which went part part there was a reason for that but the geese who are looking at the videos, hundreds of hours of videos, the guys who are looking at the videos, the guys who are out there doing all the bits, the guys who are scouting and all that kind of stuff, they're the ones that need to be coming to us for the information because when it gets to the top of the pile, we can make the decisions. But if the players ain't getting to the top of the pile, we can't make the decisions. And that's kind of where the key of it lies. We need to be employing the right people, doing the right things and having the right programmes in those places. That's my thoughts. So Stadium NK, what an absolutely inventive name that is, because they uh, they just couldn't think of anything else at the time. You know, they had years to think about it. You know, relocating from the south of London as they trundled up the motorway. Stadium NK, brilliant. We, sorry, you can tell I'm not a fan. Um, I think, we, I think we know that you're not. Yeah, yeah. No, the franchise FC. Listen, anyway, we're playing them on Saturday. We've got to beat them. We're going to relegate them, which is a bit of a shame. I'm not going to mention the fact that they didn't sign Will Grigg. We should have kept them in this division. Not a shame. I'm not going to mention it at all. You know, Will Grigg will be playing in our division next season and knocking goals in left side of the season, but I'm not going to mention that at all. Stadium NK, give us a score prediction, Mr. Lane. 3 0 Brentford. Mr. L, uh, Mr. Liberal, Nick. I'll be watching from afar 2 0 Brentford. Mr. Allard. Um Watching from afar as well 2 1 Brentford. Uh, Mr. Savvy B. Uh, this is the end of my eighth match uh, continuous run of uh, watching Brentford. And, oh, thank you, thank you. And uh, I go for a 3 1 B's win. Uh, the Dutchman. 0 0. 
interesting. And myself, Billy the Bee, uh, 2-0 to Brentford. So, look, thank you very much. Again, quite a long podcast today. Didn't say all the things that we wanted to say. Check out on besotted.co.uk. The articles are going to be on there. It's going to be on Facebook, besotted.co.uk, and wherever else we can get it. Uh, they'll be, you know, it'll be up till 5 o'clock in the morning, typing this stuff out, so it's there when you get up in the morning on the train to work and you can read it. But listen, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for tuning in. We're not trying to preach to you. We're just throwing information out there. We didn't know a lot of this information. We, we know it now, and we just thought it's good for you to get it out there. And you make your own mind up. Besotter.co.uk, subscribe to us now, please. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to cut off now. But before we say that, we're going to put MK Dons, a.k.a. Franchise FC, down with a big cheer off. Come on, you Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered. By fans.